Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the State of the Arc podcast. My name is Mike. My name's Kason. Whew, we got some good stories this week. Yeah. Um, we're going to be talking about the rebooting of Metroid Prime 4. Talking about CrossCode. Coming to the Switch. If you guys don't know what CrossCode is, you're going to learn about it today. <laughs> um, it's an awesome game. And then uh, our main topic is going to be on uh, how to properly adapt a video game to a film. Um, this has eluded filmmakers since the beginning of time. We've never had a good video game movie. so Since, since the beginning of the 1980s. We need an answer. <laughs> yeah. Wild. Um, and then uh, Community Stories today. Uh, really cool post from Xylon73. He's doing a localization for um, Fire Emblem Thracia, one of the Super Nintendo Fire Emblem games that were, n- were never officially localized. So we're going to go over what he's been doing there. So let's get started talking about CrossCode. I'm going to play the trailer for this in the background while I talk about how awesome this mm. game is. Um, so let me just uh, come over here. You guys can just watch this while I talk about it. So CrossCode mm. came on my radar, I want to say like a little over a year ago. Um, yeah. I think uh, someone in the community, maybe it's Heon, brought it to my attention. Um, he was like, hey, there's this indie game um, being developed right now. It was in early access, so you could like try different builds of it like as they were sort of developing it. Um, and everyone should know at this point what a huge fan of Hyper Light Drifter I am. And this is a very similar kind of game. You have, like, your melee combat and also, like, your gun play sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. And it's really fast-paced. And, um, but it's got, like, a really cool sort of story to it. Uh, sort of like, uh, well, I don't like to use this comparison because people will, you know, have preconceived notions but it's 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 kind of like a sword art online situation it's, oh perfect people are, are in the, an anytime MMO. say dot hack sign don't it's a, instead okay there you go yeah dot say dot hack sign <laughs> you get Not more respect from the anime situation. community <laughs> <laughs> anyways just dot it's, hack. Anyway. it's done pretty well um i did a first look uh video on it um back when it was still in early access but it is a legit really really good game and it is now coming to the Nintendo Switch um, later this year. So it's coming out right. this year. I would think if they're announcing it now in like a Nintendo Direct in January, that's probably going to be first quarter. For the indies, yeah, that's usually soon. That's usually So quick. like a couple months away, but if it were later in the year, I would be surprised that they decided to uh, bring it up now. Yeah. But um, if you have not heard of it, look into it because... Um, it's a sweet game. Like, it's really, really fun game. Uh, good puzzle solving, really good combat, really well-designed levels and enemies, and the art style is freaking fantastic. Mm. Um, just, like, super cool game that is in the same vein as Hyper Light Drifter, but more of, like, a traditional, like, you know, there's dialogue and there's characterization, and, and it's not as abstract a story as Hyper Light Drifter is. So um, it's super cool. Guys should look into it if you have not played it. Um, Sweet. So that's coming to the Switch. But another really big announcement from Nintendo. Yeah, this was uh, huge. Metroid 4. Was it 2016 that Metroid Prime 4 was announced at E3? I think it was 2016. That was when the... Maybe 2017. Breath of the Wild was shown at that E3? 
The Switch came out in 2017? Wii right? It must have been 2017. It must or did have been the Switch come out 2016? I think it was 2017. Okay. The same year that... Yeah. This, or right before the, the time that Zelda came out. Zelda came yeah. out in 2017? Early 17. 2017? March 2017 with the Okay, Switch. so it was 2016. So it was we 16, at, okay. That oh. we were at E3. Anyways, I don't remember which year it was, but it's been a couple years that they announced Metroid Prime 4. And mm. I, I've seen a lot of people say this, and it, it did kind of feel that way, that somebody threw that together, like the, the, the logo reveal of Metroid yeah, Prime 4. Yeah, because there wasn't anything to it. <laughs> in After Effects, like... 10 minutes before they freaking yeah. announced the thing. Now, this is something that we've talked about a lot, uh, a lot actually, because we covered Square Enix stuff and we've talked about the way that Square Enix reveals games versus the way like Bethesda reveals games yeah. being on one extreme, we get an announcement that we started working on something, everyone. Look yeah. forward to this in 20 years. About starting <laughs> writing a script soon. Versus yeah. Bethesda, like, here's a new game that we're almost done with. You can have it in like three months from now, right? Yeah. And we prefer the latter, although Bethesda, we prefer Bethesda's way of announcing games, not necessarily the quality at which they've been putting them out recently, right? Anyways, <laughs> Nintendo usually sides more on the Bethesda side. They announce something when there's something to show, when you know they have gameplay and you know, something concrete. And, you know, they've delayed stuff, and sometimes it's a couple years later you'll actually get it. But usually they're pretty good about announcing something when it when they have something to announce. Yeah. This is a very strange example of them not doing that. You know, they actually did a couple of them that year. I remember they did the Shin Megami Tensei yep. now, announcement. That's super early. Like, what and when is that coming, right? They so announced think, the Pokemon was years out. They had only really oh, yeah. started. I don't remember because the guy was they're like let's go to our dude over in Nintendo headquarters and he's like we're doing Pokemon and that was it like Nintendo did a couple of those and I guess it was probably just to sell the switch yeah. because if I, they I, aren't facing a system that year they don't normally do that mm-hmm. so I think there's two two reasons why they did this one mm-hmm. like you're talking about Shimigami Tensei as well I think that they're trying to sell switches before they had like a robust library Exactly. They're trying to make the it's promise of what impressive. <laughs> yeah, they're trying to make the promise of like here's what's coming and this is why you yeah. should buy the thing. That's one reason. But the second reason is because they had not been developing a mainline Metroid game, but they had that whole debacle with Metroid Prime Federation Force or whatever it was. Yes. And so and they had to assure people that like okay, you didn't like that, but we are going to make a real one, don't worry. It's like, you know, if they had been developing because that's what everyone thought Metroid Prime Federation Force was going to be. They thought, oh, there's going to be a Metroid announcement. You know, there's leaks about that sort of thing ahead of time. Yeah. We're so stoked for a new Metroid, like a legit Metroid. I don't know. There was Just... a bad taste left in everyone's mouth from uh, Other M. Yeah. And then it was like, we're getting a Metroid announcement. And then it was that stupid Federation Force thing. Yeah. And people were so pissed yeah. that I think Nintendo was like, uh-oh. We aren't even making a Metroid <laughs> mainline game right now. We're not even in development on that yet. Like, how many more years out is it till we can, like, appease these fans? And so I think they felt some pressure to, like, assure people we're working on a real Metroid game. We're going to do that. But even then, people were like, oh, it's Metroid Prime. Does that mean Retro Studios 
is collaborating on this. Are they working on that? But they weren't at the time they were working on something else. Yeah, they weren't. And so it was like, well, then which uh, studio at Nintendo, which dev team is working on Metroid Prime, right? There was all these questions about it, but it was all very secret. And now we learned this, right? Nintendo just announced a new Metroid Prime 4 development update. Uh, let's see. Nintendo Cedar Managing Executive Officer uh, released discussing the game's progress. Unfortunately, the video notes that the game is not progressing as expected. Takahashi, uh, Takahashi noted, ever since the E3 2017 announcement, there it is right there, the answer to our question, um, we have not been able to give you an update, but as a result of the continuing development since that time, although this is very regrettable, we must let you know that the current development progress has not reached the standards we seek in a, Metro, in a sequel to the Metroid Prime series. Um, so there's a whole video on it, and you can watch it. But he goes on to say basically that um, they are re-examining uh, the development of the game. Like they're basically restarting. They're they're boot, rebooting it. They're starting over entirely. They're scrapping it. Nothing. Yeah. Um, and but they did say that Retro Studios is the the who are the creators of the original Metroid Prime trilogy. Uh, they're going to be collaborating now. So whatever team at Nintendo was developing this, um, maybe they're still sort of the main developers and they're just kind of restarting development, but they're bringing Retro in. So if you're a fan of uh, the Metroid Prime series, that should be good news. I think that a lot of people are upset rightfully that, oh man, like we were hoping for some some release date or we were hoping for some progress, but... It sounds like um, it was not going well. So, it, it sounds least... like too many different, like smaller companies that were working on little pieces of it, and it just wasn't like adhering properly. So, yeah, they're like so let's it, just one umbrella. So basically, at least we know that Retro, who has tons of experience, has made a lot of great games in collaboration with Nintendo in the last freaking like decade and a half two decades whatever it is um they are going to be involved so they should get this right it's it's obviously important to them that they get it right because metroid other m was um a big disappointment for people federation force really drove people over the edge if the fans of metroid are not happy with the state of metroid and they feel like they've got to deliver so at least they're not going to try and push something out just because they want to mitigate the losses they yeah. are they are interested in making this really good. So that is a good sign, I think. Nintendo has more, like, AAA IPs than they know what to do with, <laughs> than they can possibly <laughs> they can't manage it themselves. They just can't. They have way too much stuff going for Yeah. Them. Like, I don't know how many dev studios. I know they have, what do they, they, they name them uh, A and B? I can't remember which studio names their studios A, B, C, and D. That may be yeah, the Square Enix. But anyways... Nintendo um, has, like, I think two main or maybe three main sort of, like, dev studios that work on games. And you have, like, the Mario team and the Zelda team. And then they have, like, these other dudes that, that do... The majority of other people. Yeah, it's like those dudes make Mario and Zelda. So who yeah. makes Metroid? Who makes Donkey Kong? This is why you've had Rare making Donkey Kong Country. And then that yeah. became sort of Retro Studios. But Retro Studios also was doing Metroid. Didn't they do they, some Star Fox stuff? Or? Uh, actually... Think, well, they have had uh, collaborations with Capcom and Namco, I think. I think uh, that 
maybe Namco did one of the Star Fox games. And I think I think Capcom did Capcom work on the Dinosaur Planet one? No, that was Rare. I think Rare was originally working on the Dinosaur Planet game on N64, but then they split and I think Capcom sort of like took it from there or something. I maybe I'm getting that wrong. Anyways, um, okay, yeah, they didn't do. They didn't. It do, wasn't uh, Capcom. I don't know. I haven't. But Retro didn't do the Star Fox the way I thought. They oh did. yeah, Retro hasn't. Um. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, they have a they lot have of the monolith, and they have intelligent systems, and they have a couple of like second party companies yeah. that help them do some stuff too. But yeah, and the, so the video game, um, what do you call them? Who does uh, Pokemon? The Pokemon Company, Animals right. Inc. or something like that. So, anyways, um, or no, that's Pixar. <laughs> anyways, they have the second parties that they've been relying on more lately, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, I think this is good news overall. I mean, it sucks that we're going to be waiting a lot longer for Metroid Prime Four, but at least uh, Retro is involved, and Nintendo has an attitude towards this where the quality is very important to them. So, I think we can expect to have a really good uh, Metroid game when this is all said and done. Hmm. Anyways, oh, there's some are... more. I just realized. Did you? Oh, what happened? Okay, so Square Enix copyrighted the term or phrase HD 2D. They copyrighted like the concept of the way they built um, Project Octopath Traveler. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that means no one else can do that. That's <laughs> but really dumb. If that's I, true. I <laughs> Because this, you know, I don't think that's it, but I, I believe it's more or less nobody else can call it what they called it, which was HD 2D. They'd have to come up with a new word or whatever. They'd have to call it something else. But that shows at least some interest on Square Enix part of continuing that style, which is freaking great news. Yeah, I think that they, I mean, they're obviously going to start working on another Octopath game. Yeah, because that game did really well, even in like Europe and all over the place. Yeah, and I know that Bravely Default's doing their next thing. Yeah. So, anyways, um, that's so dumb though. I wonder if uh, what did what did Nintendo end up calling the open world in Zelda? Open air. Yeah, they got to copyright that now. Now nobody can do that. <laughs> <laughs> no one can have a dude flying around now. Um, and then not yeah, I know I agree. Ronnie H seven. It, it's HD two D isn't even a good descriptor most people refer to it as 2.5d that is like the common because it's not quite 3d but it's not 2d anyways but hd 2d is kind of weird but um open air but also nintendo called it they didn't just call it a physics system they called it a chemistry system as well so (laughs) they kind of did some other things there no one can do that now so nintendo did it sorry guys (laughs) so pretentious dude so pretentious feel the need to copyright some stupid like I know Square Enix is like that though. Uh, High horse man. Square. Tell you what, Kingdom Hearts three comes out this week. It does in like two days. So I'm going to be streaming that game, by the way, and I will be playing it live on Twitch with my wife because she doesn't want me playing it by myself, and I don't want her playing it by herself. We play it together, and we're going to stream it live. So we're going to do that probably the night it comes out on Tuesday. So okay, so ready. yeah. So if you guys are uh, stoked for Kingdom Hearts three, Kason, who is much more enthusiastic about those games than me, I can provide you until Kingdom Hearts three. I have a video that's going to be coming out tomorrow, by the way, talking about why I love Kingdom Hearts and 
Yeah. Oh, it means a lot to me, man. I'm, I'm too excited for Kingdom Hearts 3. I can't even, I can't even put, put it into words. Um, yeah, so you don't have to suffer through me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like wanting to commit suicide for three hours every time I play Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> good games, man. I'll never understand. <laughs> um, to answer M's question, yes, it's going to be here on this Twitch channel. Um, on the Resonant Arc Twitch channel, where you are yep. right now. I'll be here on this channel, yeah. I do have my own Twitch, but I, I'll i be doing it on this one. So, uh, that's where you can see that. Um, so, look forward to that. Unless, I mean, I know a lot of you are going to be shutting out. You're going to become shut-ins and just, like, play Kingdom Hearts 3 for, like, a week. And yeah, it use your vacation days from work to play Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, anyways, if if you're, I'm sure that you'll get much further into the game more quickly than Kaysen will. And you so, guys probably will. Cause I'm only going to be playing. I'm when I I will not be playing it unless I'm streaming it, and that'll be like two hours a night because I that's the only time I can really do that. So I will only be playing two hours a day. So by the end of the week, we'll not even be like a quarter of the way through the game. So. Yeah, Please, so you, you <laughs> you'll probably be able to continue watching Kaysen's playthrough even if you're playing the game on your own and not be afraid of seeing spoilers yeah. because I'm sure most of you will probably be ahead of him anyways. Yeah, you probably will be. Also, Gliding Falcon, don't just nothing. Don't don't say anything. <laughs> what's in it? What's not in it? Just 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 let me figure all that out on my own. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you, though, is, for asking people. And just so you know, Mike is less sensitive to spoilers. I am very sensitive to spoilers. Yeah. And I'm sure it will get spoiled because I'm streaming on Twitch. People are going to say what they say. Um, but we're going to be um, we're going to be banning people who do that. So don't do that. Don't be one of those people. Um, yeah. So anyways, right. be careful about spoilers, especially yeah, when Mike, you're, you're getting close, man. I'm about to click the ban Kaysen, button. Kaysen. Watch yourself. <laughs> will get pissed, <laughs> really pissed if you spoil something. So don't oh, do it. Red sandwich. You guys, you guys, you're, you're. I have an itchy um, clicking <laughs> finger to, to ban you. I will ban you. I'll do it. Don't test me. Kason has as much power here as me. So That's right, our powers are balanced, and if he bans <laughs> you, it will be difficult to get you back. Even, How hard? Anyways, even for me, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I remember for Final Fantasy 15 because that game also leaked ahead of time. People yeah. were spoiling it left and right, and I was merciless. It was ban, 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 and I thought I could go back and unban people afterwards, and it turns out I can't. So be really careful, guys. Well, you can. It just I'm not. I've not told you how to unban people. <laughs> oh, but you can. Well, that's good no. I I can. Maybe one day let you in on the secret. Will we want to unban people? Is this is how this is how the balance of power works. There are things that I know. That's right. <laughs> but Kason's twitchy banning finger is something I can't control. So there's a balance of power. <laughs> what do what do they call that in the United States Constitution? Uh, uh, checks and balances. Yeah, checks and balances. There you go. Perfect. Kason right. has the the power to ban. I have the power to unban. <laughs> So I'm the I'm the judgment. You are the mercy. Yeah. It's good though. It's good. I like the way this works. So after I'm done with Kingdom Hearts three, you can just scroll through that twenty page list of people I banned and and unban them again. Yeah, see see who you care to unban. Okay, um, let's get into our main topic. So uh, today I wanted to talk a little bit about adapting, um, especially 
when it comes to a, trying to adapt video games to films, to make a movie out of a video game. This is uh, something Hollywood has tried a lot and that they have not done well. What is the highest rated video game movie on Rotten Tomatoes? This is like stupid. Okay, let me tell you, because I did figure this out. The new Rampage movie, and the reason that is so stupid... Here, let me hit up Rotten Tomatoes now. It, um, at least for a little bit there, it had a 51 or 52 with uh, The Rock. What's it at? Wait, what the heck? Oh my gosh, there are tons of movies called Rampage. So Rampage, there you go, 52%. It is the highest, and this is the reason it's stupid. I made a dark history video talking about how video game movies suck. Mm. And I mentioned this film, and my line was, yes, this movie's not out yet, but something tells me it's not going to break the, the, uh, <laughs> the trend of bad video game movies. It is the highest video game movie rated ever made. And... It's oh, a 52%, which is still rotten, by the way. So that's okay. Dumb. So um, Comrade Sandwich brings up Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Now, okay. was this that a distinction? Was that a video game first or was it a comic first? No, it's well, it's not based on a game. I, I don't think it's based on a video game. It is. Well, there, there is a Scott Pilgrim versus the world video game. Yeah, but I don't. On PlayStation 3. Okay, Scott Pilgrim, when did it come out? Okay, so Comrade is saying that it was a comic first. Comic first. So it was a comic first, then they did a video game. It's kind of like an arcade style video game on PS3, like um, yeah. like an indie game. And then they made a movie after that. Uh, Riker's Bit says, no, video game was developed during the filming of the film. Both are adaptions of a comic. Okay, that's so it was what a I comic first. Because I, I remember looking into this, and people do not consider Scott Pilgrim vs. World an adaptation of a video game. Yeah, he's saying the video game was released after the film. Okay, okay. so it's not a movie based on a video game, so it doesn't count. But that is a pretty good movie. Um, right, that would be. And there's a couple others, like even, even the movie Pixels with Adam Sandler. I don't know what that sure. got. But it's not an adaptation. It just has game stuff in it. Or, sure. or a Oh, what's his name? I just saw it recently. The, um, the Wreck It Ralph. It's it's oh, right. like, that would be the highest rated video game movie ever, but it's not an adaptation. It's it's based on a game that's not real, and they do stuff that wouldn't have happened in the game anyways. So, mm. anyways, we're talking specifically adapting a video game, the story, the characters as is into a film, not just kind of referencing games and stuff. Sure. So, yeah, the point is, it's not been done well. No. And there's been a lot of attempts. As Christine brings up here, uh, Super Mario Brothers from 1993 was really bad. <laughs> um, I remember when that came out, dude. I remember. I was in theaters watching that movie. Prince of Persia. Uh, people are saying Prince of Persia wasn't that bad, but to say it wasn't that bad... Certainly doesn't say it, it was still good. Bad. Exactly. It is still bad. It's just not that bad. And and the reason Prince of Persia isn't that bad, and same thing with Tomb Raider, the new Tomb Raider, or unless you're talking about the old Tomb Raider, because that one is pretty bad, um, is because like the as a movie, it's just it's okay, it's kind of fun. But as an adaptation, it is it is very poorly done. It is it is not an actual adaptation, but they have some fun special effects and all that. 
I like where Anvil's going with this. If you follow this through, this is kind of how I feel. Uh, some people justify some of the video game movies. If you watch all the cutscenes from Xenoblade Chronicles 2, all 14 hours of them, like Raid and I did last night, and you drink about 20 beers and don't pay attention to the last five hours, it's a pretty good movie if you like watching bad things. <laughs> there you go, Angel, dude. You hit the nail on the head. So, everything <laughs> subjective. There you go. Topic yeah. done. <laughs> they're, certainly, they're certainly watchable video game film adaptions. Like yeah. you can sit through it, but it would be, I'd be hard pressed to say almost all of them. I'd be hard pressed to say any of them are actually good movies. Some people <laughs> will point to Mortal Kombat. It's one of those, it's, it's fun to watch cause it's bad type of things, right? It's not yeah. actually legitimately good. It's not a legitimately good movie. <laughs> the thing is, if you take the movie and pretend it's not a video game adaptation, if you pretend the game never existed and just watch the movie for what it is, is it a good movie? And for Mortal Kombat, the answer is not yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is no. But because it's the movie and it's fun, whatever, and then, okay, that's, that's, it's a fun movie to watch. But So I wanted to talk about um, maybe the reasons why this is the case. Why have so many attempts been made with a lot of money put behind them and with a lot of talented people working on them? I think of even like the Assassin's Creed film. Oh my adaption. gosh, 300 million or something like that. Huge budget. And actors um, too. Michael Fassbender yeah. was not just an actor in it. I think he was pretty involved in like the Producer. conceptual phase. Yeah, right? his studio that made it. So yeah. And he's legitimately like a good artist, a good filmmaker, a good storyteller, I feel. And so you have all these talented people working on it. What is going wrong? Why is it not working? That's kind of the heart of, I think, what I want to try and get to today. Hmm. Um, so I, I remembered back to an interview with Orson Scott Card that I read around the time that Ender's Game was being adapted to film. And I remember I read that book for the first time uh, probably a year or so before the movie came out. I remember that I read the book and then there was an announcement that they were making a movie like right after I had finished reading it. I was like, whoa, no way. They're making <laughs> a movie. Sweet. Um, and so like anyways, uh, I was very, very excited to see that film. Uh, and of course, uh, with with novel to film adaptions there's been much much more oh, yeah. great success there yeah and but i think that there are similar problems mm. that video games face in the transition to an adaption to film that novels do so well, notably the fact that almost 90 percent of what's in the book has to be removed right yeah so, that's probably the biggest like hurdle I believe that there's one distinguishing difference, and, and we'll go over that, as to why there's an added element of difficulty when bringing a video game to film that novels don't have, but there's still kind of a similar idea, right? Um, outside of film and theater, storytelling is, across basically all other mediums, you don't have to feel pressured to finish a story in one setting. When you mm. read a novel, you can put it down after you read a chapter and come back to it. And everyone's okay with putting the story on hold and returning yeah. to it multiple times. That's true. The suspense and stuff, it doesn't, it's not the same. Yeah. yeah. There's an expectation there. This is going to take me a few days, maybe a week, 
yeah. maybe a month, depending on which I'm reading. Uh, and I can just keep returning to this. Um, even with, with this still fits within film, but television series is the same way. You're not expected. Some people do, but you're not expected yeah. to binge watch the entire series back to back to back in one sitting. That's not how it's meant hmm. to be consumed. Yeah. <laughs> And so you watch an episode or maybe two and you put it down and you go back to your daily life and then you return to it and you come back to it. Now, with film and theater, this is not possible because you're going out somewhere. With a book, you take that book home. With a video game, you take that game home. Mm. With TV, you're watching it at home and you can just like bring it up at your convenience, at your leisure, return to it yeah. whenever it's convenient for you, watch it or consume it for how long you want to, whatever fits with your schedule. But with film and theater, you're going to the theater. You're yeah. going out. And now all of a sudden there are constraints on your time because I can't remain at the theater for a week and a half binge watching this story. <laughs> I have to yeah. go back to my life. I have to go back to work. So there's a very, very uh, film in particular, even more so than theater, I think, is like the most time constricted storytelling medium that there is. Yeah. You have maximum three hours to get this thing told. And by the time that they leave, the audience wants a resolution. Um, maybe the exception to this are stories that we know are going to turn into trilogies. They're written as trilogies from right. the beginning. But even then people leave and they go, man, like, ah. Uh, like, I have to wait a whole year to, like, come back and see. It's not at my leisure. I don't get to decide when I come back to the theater and continue the story. I have to wait now. I guess that's yeah. true with novels that are in series and you have to wait for the next one novel to be written. That exists to some degree. But I think people generally understand my point with this. People want to have a conclusive beginning, middle, and end. We start the story. We finish the story in one sitting. And that makes film a very restricted storytelling media uh, mm. medium it's hard to do that it's really hard to do that to build the case uh to build the setups and to build like the characters all really well very believably deliver all of the context that you need for the 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 payoffs in the film and the climax to really work emotionally for you and then to deliver a resolution that makes you go yes like that was awesome that's really hard to do in two hours people yeah. that is not easy yeah you have to really, really pick and choose what you want to say there in order for it to not feel messy, in order for it to not feel like things are unresolved, in order for there to not be plot holes, in order for things to be explained appropriately. It's mm -hmm. really hard. Uh, Anvil Doom says, what about TV animated series adaptions? Oh, to film. I, I think it would have a similar problem, right? Oh, so we're like Game of Thrones is a movie? Yes. How would you do that? I have no idea. Even one of the books <laughs> is like, okay, sure. If you have four, a four hour film plus an extended edition that releases afterwards, but you, you just can't like you can't do, or the walking dead or breaking bad or any of that stuff, any of the, the big TV series that we've seen, you can't put that like the movie, um, the TV show lost. We talk about lost a lot because it kind of changed what TV shows were from that mm -hmm. time period on. And TV shows have sort of tried to imitate that to some or degree or another ever since. And that's why J.J. Abrams is just so, so famous now. Um, the reason Lost worked was because it was so long, because you had to wait so long. Like, 
I think it's. I think it would be a lot harder to. Binge, I haven't tried this, but it would be a lot harder to binge watch Lost now uh, than it would have been back then because you're just getting information, information, information. The whole point of Lost was you have to wait, right? You have to wait, mm-hmm. and this thing has to take a very long time to unfold. It has to, and if you make Lost into a film, you you miss both of those things. You aren't you aren't waiting in between episodes, and you aren't. Um, you aren't like the suspense doesn't work anymore because you don't have to wait nearly as long for the resolution to happen. Like people were just itching for loss to be over and it wouldn't ever end. It just kept going <laughs> and freaking JJ Abrams a genius for that. But you can't do that in a movie. People would not be happy. It would not. Um, and of course at the end of lost, a lot of people, I'm not going to say what happens, but some people were disappointed with the way that it ended. And if that was a film, people would say, wow, I did not like that movie. But because it was a TV show that went on for seven years, people could, through the middle of the show, talk to their friends and say, this show's so awesome because it hadn't ended yet and they didn't know that they were going to be disappointed. So it ended up building this huge audience. Anyways, it wouldn't have worked as a movie. It wouldn't have been nearly as popular. So I want to respond to something that's kind of coming up in the comments multiple times here. So we're talking about yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, video games to films. We we agree with everyone else saying that uh, taking a video game and adapting it to a television series would be the best way to do it. That is, I think Mike and I would agree on that, yeah. Like, we, we, we are all on the same page there. It's much better to adapt into a series like yeah. the Castlevania animated series that's on Netflix. You, you'll have a lot more success and a lot less limitation there. However... Yeah. We are entertaining the concept of trying to take a video game that we love that's huge like that and making it into a film. How how would you go about doing that? Movie that shows in a theater, yeah. Right. And so there are some animated ones that work for that, like um Pikachu, the Pokemon, the movie. Detective Pikachu. <laughs> yeah, or Detective Pikachu. I don't know. Somebody mentioned that Detective Pikachu. Honestly, that might that might shatter records. That movie looks like it might actually end up being I don't know that it's gonna be a great movie, but it might be more than a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, you know. <laughs> like, it looks kind of fun, at the very least. Yeah. So, um, so let's let's dive into this a little bit. Uh, so, I was kind of... The point I was trying to make there is that the, the real challenge here is taking something that is typically serialized, or at least consumed in a serialized manner. Sure. I, I come back to it every day for many, many days, and the story is very long. Um, and, and, and because it's long, it has all these opportunities to build the characters and give you like rich context and really have you get all the things you need to know about the people. And, and it really builds a case around it and a, a really effective setup to a great payoff later. Right. That's to do that now in this compressed space is super tough, especially when people already know the story. They already read the book. They already played the video game. And they saw it being done really effectively there. It had a huge fan base for a reason. It was very popular. And people already, like, know the spirit of that thing. Yeah. And now they're going to have a comparison over here in the film version. And be like, this is impactful. This, like, Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings are the two that I look at for those. And yeah, I hadn't read Lord of the Rings when I saw Fellowship. Fellowship's my favorite. After I read the books, it kind of made me like the movies less. Same thing with Harry Potter. I watched the first few movies, loved them. After I read the books, I just didn't like the movies as much anymore. Like, and and I think that's pretty normal. It's very normal. So, what is the key, right? Like, how how would you go about doing this in a way to where you know you have to cut enormous amounts out of the story and stuff other people will know should have been there? Yeah. 
That's and at the same time deliver for the audience so that generally speaking, you're always going to have some people that aren't going to be happy with it. But on on a larger scale, the consensus is this was awesome and and I felt like it was well adapted. How do you do that? Well, okay. Doom. Read, do you read his comment real quick? Here, per- uh, prefer movies set in the world of a game, possibly using the characters, but not trying to directly adapt a specific game. That is that is a good answer too, right? I think that's a safer way of doing it. Is to say, um, this is a different medium, therefore we we have different advantages, yeah, and at the same time different disadvantages to playing a video game, right? Mm-hmm. Video games have the same thing. If you're trying to adapt a movie to a video game, you'd have to probably do some <laughs> things differently. Like, well, like they uh, do, <laughs> they do the, that. the Lord of the Rings video games that are based on the films yeah. that we played. You know what I mean? Like, it's not a very successful adaption. I don't feel the same spirit <laughs> playing those video games as the movies. Like, they they did not do that correctly. So there's there's unique challenges the other way, too. So Yes, that is one really good answer is to say, let's not try or let's not bother to try and tell the same story, but rather um, let's let's do the same world and tell a new story that is tailored for the strengths and weaknesses of this medium. Again, with you on that, with you on adapted to a series rather than to a film, but I still want to entertain how do we take the same story. Gotcha. And how do we adapt that so that it is satisfying? This is what I've been trying to kind of think through. That um, is the the, uh, the hard question, right? So, uh, so getting back to Orson Scott Card, I remember um, seeing the movie uh, Ender's Game, that is in theaters, and being like, "Man, so much of this I felt like they got right, like the visual aspect of the 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 battle room and." Um, so many things about it that I thought were were pretty spot on, but like I just got out of that feeling like they didn't get it. Like they didn't get what the point of Ender's Game was. They didn't focus on the right thing. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the book. Landon suggested it to me. It's from the guy who was a Disney um, storyboard artist and eventually became a director. Um, and the the book's called uh, Directing the Story. I think is what the book is called. Um, I remember the book you're talking about. I can't remember what it's called, though. I think it's called Directing the Story, but I can't remember the name of the author. It's my bad. But what he says in there is that... He was the, the storyboard guy, right? Yeah, the storyboard artist on, like, Aladdin. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he says something really profound there that I believe to be the crux of what good direction is. Because you'll, you'll see people throwing out, um, hey, you know, the direction in this was really bad. It was really poor. Bad directing in this film or whatever. And some people are confused by that. Like, what does that mean? Like, Yeah, exactly. What is good directing? What is bad directing? And he really summarizes it in, a, in an extremely profound way. He says that the director's job is to direct the attention of the audience. Mm. Plain and simple. Their job is to make you pay attention to the thing in the scene that we need for context that leads to eventually the payoff of the movie, the climax, whatever, the emotional payoff later in the movie, the resolution, all of that needs context set up in order for it to work, in order for us to understand the importance. And the director's job in every scene is to direct your attention to those pieces of context that will make that emotional payoff effective. That is the director's job. Whether it is a video game, whether it is a movie, whether it's an author writing his or her own story. Their job in every scene is to direct your attention to the thing you need to know. 
And so if the direction is messy, they're rambling on things that don't matter. They're creating yeah. conflicts that don't go anywhere, that aren't resolved, that don't matter. And, and you're left going like, what's the point of this? Um, or, or you're not getting your attention drawn to the right thing. So you don't have the emotional payoff because you didn't understand the context leading up to it. So the director's job is to direct attention to the right thing. So I came out of Ender's Game feeling like they didn't get it. They didn't understand the point of Ender's Game. They focused my attention on the wrong thing. And so when the emotional payoff at the end came in the film version, I was like, yeah, that just I don't feel it. Right. Like I just eh. it's not a terrible movie in the sense that like it's unwatchable. But it's just not very good. It's a average Hollywood movie at best. Um, so I started looking into some interviews with Orson Scott Card, and that's going to be kind of what I'm what I'm bringing up here uh, on the screen now. Um, some quotes that he had about it. Um, I, I'll summarize a lot of this article and the other one I'm going to read. But Orson Scott Card um, started as a playwright. He kind of started like his own little like theater uh, here actually in Utah and he wrote plays and he tried to make it as like a playwright. He wanted to like build his own theater and he's very invested in theater. Hmm. And um, he actually wrote Ender's Game, I think, as a play first or at least the the concept of it. I don't think it ever was produced, but um, and then eventually got into writing novels and Ender's Game was a gigantic success. He had been a, a failure as a playwright. His his theater did not do well. Um, but but Ender's Game exploded. It was like a global phenomenon. It just really resonated with people. And he has mentioned many times in interviews, people ask like, "What was it about it that worked?" And he and in a lot of interviews, he would say things like, "I don't know." Obviously, if I knew, I would have repeated it. Like I would have, because none of the other Ender's books are nearly as popular as Ender's Game. Um, he's written many successful novels, but he's never ever achieved that again. Like Ender's Game was an anomaly among his stuff. Wow. And so he would say things like, I don't know. I don't know what worked about it. I don't really understand it. Uh, obviously, if I did, I would have done it again or whatever. Um, but in this interview specifically, he says this. And then during the prep for the movie, I wrote 20 versions of the script myself. I was trying to figure out how to solve the problems. Because he's talking about the problems of adapting the this particular story to film. He said, as it's written, it's unadaptable because... The entire story takes place inside of Ender's head. Mm. And if you if you are not in Ender's head, if you don't hear his thoughts, you don't understand. He just seems like a really violent kid. Like he's he would be very misunderstood if you don't know what he's thinking. And in a film, you can't mean I guess you could be super lame if you're just hearing his thoughts, like you put a little bit of reverb <laughs> on his voiceover. You know what's funny? That's kind of the idea of um like of a soliloquy in theater mm -hmm. you know like in anime they still do that a lot right where the guy's thinking of dragon ball z oh he did this thing oh what do i do and you're in the character's head all the time right yeah that's like a carryover from theater where the main character delivers a soliloquy and just kind of poetically expresses his feelings to the audience not mm -hmm. to any other character sure. that's funny hearing that he's from a theater background and yeah. that's that's kind of where a lot of the success in his book came from right 
So anyways, it's a, it's unadaptable in, in the book form. You have to change the, the perspective, the point of view that the story is being told from because that's the only way to do it as a film. But then how do you make it work? And that was the problem he was trying to solve with all of these scripts that he wrote. So he says, I wrote 20 versions of the script myself. I was trying to figure out how to solve the problems. It's a devilishly hard book to adapt to film. The biggest problem we had was that I would write a dra draft after draft and people who already knew and loved the book would say, this is it. You nailed it. It's great. This is even better than the last one. And then I would handwrite the script to someone, uh, or I'd hand the script to someone who had never read the book and they would have no idea what it was all about. So clearly it was... Uh, Clearly, it was still dependent on having read the book and already caring about the character, and that's not what you want. So he was saying he wrote all these different versions of the script. None of them were working, and you know he was trying to write the one that would eventually be made into the film. Ultimately, that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. uh, the director did not accept. They didn't accept his script for the film. They they wrote a new one that was written by the I think the director, the Gavin mm -hmm. Kemmerer's last name. Anyways. Gavin Hood. Gavin Hood was the director. Hood, huh? Okay, so then he writes this. And this was the quote I was looking for all freaking week. I had to freaking, like, find this um, by searching for forever. But this is kind of the crux of my argument or my point here. Uh, he says, this time I got it right. The, basically the last script that he wrote that he tried to have used for the film. This time I got it right, or at least right enough. It's not enough that we like Ender because he suffers or because he's nice. It's not his struggle with the adults or his efforts to understand the aliens. It's definitely not the battle room or the war in space. What works in Ender's game is Ender's leadership of other kids. Without really ever planning it, what I had done was make Ender's relationship with them be kind of the relationship the audience wants to have. Because they want someone in their lives whom they can trust uh, to lead them, not to his or her own advantage, but to achieve group objectives and to always uh, take care to advance them individually. So people <clears throat> who have read Ender's Game might not even have realized it, like because he didn't even realize it. He, he feels like that's it. That's what it is about. Like, that's what works in Ender's Game. He, after years, I mean, this is mm. more than 20, 30 years after he had released that book, he finally himself figured out what works in his own novel. Wow. Right? And it's like, this is that's what crazy. you have. He found it. He found the spirit of Ender's Game. Right. And this is kind of an advancement of maybe some of the points I made when we talked about Lord of the Rings a few weeks back. Right. Mm. Finding the spirit of the thing and making yeah. sure that you make the movie, this short, limited, compressed format. Make sure that you know what the point is, what the theme is, what the spirit is and focus laser hard on that. And That's, then that yeah. will inform you what you have to cut. Because we're going to have to cut, like you said like 70, 80, 90% of the story out because we can't sit here for seven or to 10 hours and watch this movie. We have to do it in two or three. So uh, most of this thing has got to be cut, but this will inform you on what you can cut or what you should cut and what absolutely has to be there. And will also inform you on what changes you have to make to make that scene move faster in order to, again, stay within the limits of film but you know the point. You know what you're trying to tell the audience. You know what you're trying to make them feel because you understand what the spirit is. What is it that worked? Now, 
Mm-hmm. One thing that you brought up in a previous podcast case and that I thought was um, actually really profound, we were talking about um, getting the characters right is like a huge, yeah. huge important thing. And I think about Deadpool, um, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. For some reason, Deadpool has absolutely almost to perfection worked with the audience of both comic readers and people who didn't read Deadpool comics. And yeah. it's not because they're telling the stories perfectly faithfully no. and everything goes exactly like it did in the comic books. That's not it. It's not about that when you're adapting. It's about getting the spirit of the characters right. The yeah. characters feel correct. They act the way they should. And it's obvious that the, the filmmakers understood the point. They understood what worked about the character and the story, and they are giving you that in abundance. Every scene is driving at that. And if you if you know what it is, then you can do it, even though you make a million changes, even though you don't even tell necessarily exactly the same story. You make a, a, a twist here yeah. or there, or you change some of the, the wording of the dialogue, whatever it may be, in order to fit that compressed time limit you understood the spirit. And so when I talked about Fellowship of the Ring, I mm. talked about what I felt the spirit of Fellowship of the Ring was, the novel, which was about this way of life that you really become attached yes, to. Yes, exactly, yeah. And then the threat of losing that and the threat of losing yourself, uh, the goodness in you. And that that's really mm. what like that entire book series was all about. And it was it was derived from his experience going from the rich country to being forced to move into the mechanized uh, city and hating machinery and hating like, um, yeah. Uh, uh, the industrialization of this, this country, this, this um, place that it he used loved. to be so pretty. Yeah. Yeah. That to me is so much more prevalent and not that it's, it's not existent in the two sequels that follow fellowship of the ring, but that to me, the spirit of that is a lot more, um, pronounced in the Fellowship of the Ring, which is why those speeches really land um, mm-hmm. when they're talking about losing and you know, being called home. Um, the, the way the Shire theme is worked into certain parts of it, even though they're they're suffering and they're 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 in these difficult times, like they remember where they came from, they remember what they're fighting for, and that film really gels, even with all the changes they made, which were a ton, tons, because <laughs> it knows the spirit. Even yeah. if it's inadvertent, even if they, even if the filmmakers didn't know, just like uh, Orson Scott Card didn't know really what he was, he was writing that was resonating with people. It sort of, and, and that's maybe where the term "lightning in a bottle" can sort of come into yeah, it. Like, you yeah. don't really know, but accident. somehow yeah. you got it right. You know what I mean? And that's not yeah. to say that the, the again that the other two Lord of the Rings sequels didn't get it right or that they weren't good. They were. It's just that they weren't for me like all time classic perfection type of lightning in a bottle situations. They were very, very good films that fought that. And that's hard to do in and of itself is to follow up something that was that groundbreaking and that um, impactful and and follow them up with two movies that are very satisfying in their own right. But there's just something about fellowship. And for years I couldn't explain what it was. And people would ask, Oh, but, but you know, the next movie is so much better. Two towers so much better. And, And I would be like, I couldn't tell them why, but I think this is it. I think yeah. that this is it. If you understand the spirit of what you're making, then you can adapt it into 
anything else. You could turn it into whatever because it's not about whether or not you're going to be perfectly faithful. It's about whether or not it feels right to the audience who get it. You know what's kind of funny about that? When you look at it that way, all of a sudden Rampage being the highest rated uh, video game adaptation ever (laughs) actually makes sense. It actually does. Because you look at like Assassin's Creed, maybe not Assassin's Creed because I haven't seen that one, but The Prince of Persia. People have brought up that one a lot. It's like a pretty good movie. But it doesn't at all capture the spirit of those games, like at all. Mm. And so you're, you know, I'm not saying it's like the worst movie ever, you know, like Jerry Bruckheimer directed. It's not like bad, but, or he produced it or something. Um, But it doesn't have the spirit at all of what those games felt like when you played them. On the other hand, Rampage, (laughs) the movie, which I've also not seen, but I'm guessing based on the fact that it's The Rock and it's an action film and it's just a a big, huge gorilla breaking things, that seems to have captured the feeling of the game pretty well. And because of that, it's actually a high-rated film, which is really funny. So a lot of these like action games, a lot of these mindless entertainment games being adapted into into movies, mindless action films, is probably a pretty good fit. Yeah, I, I, that's actually a pretty good uh, a pretty good observation. I think, yeah. like as soon as you brought that up, I was like, oh, I man. was trying to make sense of why is <laughs> Rampage why why? But it absolutely makes sense looking at it from the, this perspective. It absolutely makes sense. Yeah, that's the spirit so, of those games. So when you find a director, so th- this is the key. If you're going to take a beloved video game, an all time beloved video game, yeah, and you're going to adapt it to a film, and you and you 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 believe you can have some success there you need to find first of all what's the spirit of the thing and then get yourself a director the person who's going to direct the audience's attention scene to scene to the things we need to know to build up to the climax and resolution of the story and give all the emotional payoffs make sure that person knows what the spirit of the thing is because Mm -hmm. then if he gets it if he knows what that is you can let him go it's like he's he's going to direct the attention, he's going to make changes, but it's going to be okay because he knows the spirit, he knows what the audience really innately loves about the story, and he's going to make sure that their their attention is directed to the right things to give the emotional payoff. Um, so you need, first of all, to understand what the point is, and then you need a director who understands what the point is. And if you can if you can get those two things together, I think that you can have a really successful adaption so i wanted to sort of to to close this off to do an experiment (laughs) where we think about a couple of games that were really important to us and we try to identify okay what's the spirit of that that's a great idea and how would we direct it and and make changes to it in order to adapt that thing to a film and make it work in the two-hour time limit and make sure the audience is still satisfied well i have one right away that um well i have one that i i feel like should work but actually has not worked in the past it's worked okay in the past but something along the lines of resident evil or and i'm not you know those movies weren't super great i don't feel like they captured it super well but a horror game Mm. it is it is i feel I, i think that's almost cheating in a sense it's easier to capture the the spirit of a horror game into a horror <laughs> film because the whole point of the movie and game is to scare you, right? Um, the Resident Evil movies tried to take what is essentially a horror game and make it into an action movie. And yeah. that, I don't know, made a lot of money, I guess. But they're not like great films. 
But if they focus more on like what Silent Hill did, for example, in the adaptation, making it just a horror film, um, I feel like you can have a little bit more success there. Mm-hmm. So there's one thing I want to say before I try to do this, go through this process yeah. myself. Uh, and that is that there are obviously real, because I want to identify, let's pick a game that we're yeah. both going to try and like run through this with. Sure. And I don't, do I don't want, I don't want to pick games that were made cinematic on purpose. I know because right? that's like meeting halfway. I, I don't like that. Those ones were already work. I know um, they're, they're already basically movies. <laughs> Uncharted. Heavy Rain the last would be a sweet us, movie. <laughs> Uncharted. The Last of Us, uh, Metal Gear Solid, and even Vagrant Story. Or L.A. Noir. Yeah, Vagrant Story, too. It's already too cinematic, I think. Are all made by yeah. people who were influenced by film. They were like yeah. film buffs or filmmakers first. And then they came into video games and they brought these cinematic elements of storytelling with them. Mm-hmm. We already know those would be easily adaptable to films because they basically are films already. Yeah. For the most part, all their cutscenes are basically like watching a movie. They're basically so. Movies. I don't want to pick something like that. I want to pick something more like a Shigeru Miyamoto developed game that was made to be a fetching game. It was not yeah. ever considered that this should be made into a movie. This was made for the strengths of gameplay. It was focused on the immersive, like adventure aspect, exploration aspect. How would you take the spirit of something like that? Or we could go in the direction of maybe a Final Fantasy game which is more like an anime than it is like a film or maybe like a manga. Yeah, um, like yeah. Sui- like Suikoden was very <laughs> influenced yeah. by manga or, or also influenced by a classic Chinese novel, uh, Shui Hu Zuan. So taking a game like that and trying to find what is its spirit and how then would you make that into a movie is a much more difficult answer than how to make Uncharted into a movie because it's obvious it was it was already made that way and then they they successfully adapted that to be a game almost <laughs> right. Um, uh, Chocolate asking for Solitaire, Minesweeper, Tetris. Well, um, here's the thing: I actually had that <laughs> thought. I I thought of chess, and I was like, "Can you extract the spirit of chess?" And the answer is yes, you can. It's certainly. pensive, thoughtful, and strategic, right? Mm-hmm. and you're trying to guess somebody's moves ahead of time. You could make a, a game or a movie out of chess, potentially, as long mm-hmm. as you stick to that spirit, and you could possibly make it pretty engaging even. Mm-hmm. Um, so Gliding Falcon is saying a, a Ghibli-esque Zelda film would work. I think a lot of people feel that way. Probably. I think that is the right yeah. answer, because yeah. I think that there is a connection there. Maybe we haven't necessarily identified it yet. But there's something about the spirit of Ghibli films, the coming of age adventure feel of a Ghibli film. And that that resonates on the same wavelength as Zelda does a coming of age adventure video game and a coming of age adventure films that generally follow a similar spirit. And that those two seem to to come into congruence with one another. So I, I'll say we'll stay away from Zelda because I think we're already close to an answer on how that should be adapted to film. Yeah, should yeah, yeah. Be a, a We've talked about that film. way too much already. We need to do something <laughs> fresh. So we need to pick something. Uh, Chocolate Rob brought up um, Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. We already have a, a film adaption of more or less that story that didn't really work but sort that's of. one that's very important to me it, yeah maybe not as much to case and so maybe, maybe less so 
People um, are saying Final Fantasy VII. But we course. could <laughs> talk about Final Fantasy VII because we, we've both played that. Yeah. I don't know no if you have time. another one in mind that would be a more interesting thought experiment to try and get to what the spirit well, of Well, that is. is Riker's Beard <laughs> had apparently submitted this question a little while back um, about the Final Fantasy thing. Minecraft. <laughs> the Minecraft sort of Chrono Trigger. Story. Chrono Trigger. God of War. God of War is too cinematic, though. We've got a. We don't want to take a game on like that. God of War, at least the newest one, fits to me into the same vein as um, like Uncharted. Uncharted, yeah. yeah. Final Fantasy twelve, kind of like Cloud Atlas. <laughs> we watched that movie. Uh, Miss Monet is asking, going back to my previous question, when should a video game be made into a live action and when should it be kept as an animation? Um, I think that that is hmm. part of identifying the spirit as well. Yeah. Like... Like for Ghibli, right? I think that we we didn't go through and try to figure out what that is, but there is something about Ghibli animation and like the style and feel and spirit of Zelda that seemed to work. Making Zelda into a live action film yeah. um, just doesn't feel right for like communicating that spirit. And uh, and yeah. it's funny to me that the most realistic aesthetically Zelda game there is, which is Twilight Princess, very good at first. People were super, super stoked yes. about that when it was released and you saw what he looked like. But then that game actually hasn't lasted or resonated quite no, as well not really. as something like um, a Wind Waker, yeah. um, which has gone on to be revered many, many years later as one of the very tippy-top shelf best Zelda games. But Twilight Princess, not as much. Not to say that Twilight Princess is considered bad. There are definitely fans of that game and some that consider it no. the best one. But there's not as many that hold it as in high regard as something like um, Wind Waker. And I think it has yeah. a lot to do with the fact that the spirit of Zelda is not necessarily totally congruent with a live-action, realistic, gritty yeah. sort of feel or spirit to it. Yeah, I think so. We're getting some Kingdom Hearts, Bioshock, Star Fox, Terranigma. <laughs> Terranigma is good. So what, what's resonating with you? Which one do you want to try? And... Gosh, I mean, I sort of guess any of them, but let's do Chrono Trigger. I think that would actually be a really... Um, oh, this is a tough one. Yep, that would be really... Hard. I know. That's why I was thinking like, <laughs> hey, let's take on a hard one because it would be really, it would be really tough. So extracting... The spirit. The spirit of Chrono, of Trigger. Chrono Trigger. Because once again, we have a silent protagonist. Yep, that's one of the first things you have to try and figure out is whether or not that's Kronos difficult. Can talk. <laughs> and if he talks, does he have a British accent? Does he does he have an American accent? Does he does he speak <laughs> Japanese? Does he is he is he you know like I don't know what so does he even sound like? I don't know. Here's a big problem for a lot of people that don't like Matt Chrono. Is Chrono <laughs> <laughs> Matt Damon? Um, no, but. Uh, Here's actually a big problem for people who don't like Chrono as a character. They don't like him being a silent protagonist. Sure. It's sure. that um, he has such like, in terms of just uh, the events of the game, he's like put into the center, but he doesn't have any true characterization. Like we don't know his personality. We don't know like, he doesn't have like a really strong connection to many of the characters. I don't, I wouldn't say all some people say he doesn't have a connection to the people in the game. I think that he has a, a good connection with Marl. I think he has a good collection connection with Luca, but outside of that, he doesn't like have relationships with 
people in in the game right some not people necessarily yeah and it's because he's silent that they decided not to do that so some people feel there's a lot of room for depth there sure and but you'd have to you would then be choosing to create a character for chrono and that's very very risky you <laughs> you have to make him into an extremely likable character you you it would, that's very difficult to do. I think so, the spirit of those games wouldn't come so much from the characters then, at least not the main character. Mm-hmm. It would have to come from the overarching like theme of the game, I suppose. So Rob brought up something here. I want to come back to that. Uh, actually, let's just do it now before I forget about it. Yeah. This is actually something we thought about when we were developing a story for a live-action Zelda. Oh, the Comrade Sandwich said ten, that. Ten years ago or something. Said yeah. it might work if he was actually mute, and that or deaf, and they made a point. Like that, yeah. So when we were developing a script, uh, a concept, uh, an outline for a Zelda live-action movie we wanted to make, we decided that we liked the idea of making Link deaf. Yeah. Um, and so the, it's not that he's mute. It's not that he can't talk. It's that he's a reserved character who only um, who only speaks when it's absolutely necessary, or only. Um, I guess emotes uh, audibly when it's absolutely necessary because his personality is one where he's reserved and he can't hear anyways, but he's learned how to read people really well. He's learned how to read lips. He's learned how to like see people's emotions through their body language. And he's a very, he that's turned him into a super observant character right now to, right. to me, some obvious weaknesses, which is really important. Um, yeah. When crafting a character that they have, like weaknesses and and not being able to hear is is a significant disadvantage yeah but it's something that he can work to overcome through various other ways you know throughout the film it's it's a really good way of you know putting that in there so we that resonated with us for all the reasons case and just described and it would be a grounded way to stay faithful to the fact that link never talks but it still remains to be seen how that would have been received <laughs> christine uh, by the ocarina of time link okay it's a different link okay but but here's the thing actually this is actually a misunderstanding we talked about this a little bit last week yeah link is not actually mute he doesn't actually not talk in those stories he That's, does talk yeah he does talk yeah like if when you when you go to princess zelda in ocarina of time she says um oh what's your name and then there's a dot 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 and 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 she goes oh link, oh, link. so it's 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 um it's insinuated that he spoke there right and in a lot of other zelda games they make it even more more overt i think it's in um in uh skyward sword that princess zelda's father the like the chief of the community he comes down to link's room and he asks him what happened and link goes like this and he like does a bunch of motions with his hands yeah. as if he's talking so obviously he recounts what happened he's not actually mute it's almost like um our idea to make him deaf or mute um was almost like a like an easy way around not having to develop uh-huh. a character or give link a voice mm-hmm. because it would be way too hard to actually take the time to give link a proper voice sure and so, i don't even think nintendo can do it well so there's no way we can do it anyways we we were we went through this process and we got to a point where we felt 
that we had sort of captured the spirit of just Zelda stories in general, I felt. Uh, you know, we were going to having a single game. It was kind of an off story. It was like a, a side story, you know, in between games, not like, yeah, weren't adapting one of the actual games. We were essentially trying to, I don't know how much of it we want to get away. I don't think we're ever going to do this, but we might not, but I still kind of, <laughs> you know, maybe one day it, it fit it's into the current time. timeline. It fit into the current timeline somewhere and essentially explained how we got from this timeline point to this timeline point. It yeah. was an in-between story. Yeah. And anyways, but I have no idea how people would have responded to a death link. Like we felt like we had come to an answer there that felt right, but I don't know. I don't know because I don't know if we had actually identified the spirit of that character. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, link isn't deaf. Yeah, it would have been um it would have been difficult. That would have been another uphill battle. But it would so, have been an easier uphill battle than giving him a voice that no one would have liked. Right. So anyways, we're going to have to return to that in terms of Chrono, like whether or not we're going to have him talk and whether or not we're going to give him a character. Uh, because again, one of the things I brought up about Deadpool is that Deadpool is exactly right. The character is exactly right. The interpretation, the spirit of that character from comic to screen is perfect. And that's yeah. why it works. And if you mess Chrono up, you're not going to succeed. Yeah, so no. we have to find a way to make him work within a film. And we'll get to this in a minute, I think, because we have to identify what the spirit of the story is first. But we have to make make him work in a film where it has to make sense if we decide he doesn't talk, that he doesn't talk, and, and justify that. He or we have to talk. <laughs> or we have to give him a voice and a character, but that is going to have to work with the spirit of the story. So let's get into what we think that is first. Yeah. Here's what I have always personally gotten out of Chrono Trigger. And I want people in the comments to sort of like uh, give me their thoughts on this. Because um, I don't know how, whether this is sort of like an innate feeling other people had. But what always struck me powerfully about Chrono Trigger is that the main characters come from a time in this world where everything's at peace right hmm. they hmm. don't have to do anything and they will never suffer the way that the people of 2300 ad suffer that's even yeah. even the way that people in uh a thousand uh or, or the time 600 600 mm -hmm. so people thousand is the time period of current day uh 680 when they're fighting against uh you know the the monsters or whatever there's like the war between humans and monsters i forget the name of the monsters but um, like they are going through difficult trying times, a lot of uh, uncertainty about the future death. You go back to 12,000 BC and there's a whole civilization that's subjugating people who they consider below beneath them. They're using magic for this and they unleash basically the power of Lavos and like set things in motion that like doom yeah. the planet. Um, 65,000 BC, uh, uh, when you have like the, the prehistoric time period, again, you have like the the reptites and the humans sort of like battling for dominance. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of war and tribulation and a lot of uncertainty in all the other time periods, except 1000 AD, where they're having a nice little festival and celebrating uh, the, you know, the anniversary of the founding of their kingdom and everything's fine. And you have three characters in the lead from this time period who make the decision to get involved, even though they don't have to. 
they could go back to their time. And then there's there's definitely some stuff happening there. There's a reason why they try to escape by using the time portals. It's because Chrono is uh, essentially accused of having kidnapped the princess. And so things in their time period, there's there's definitely tension happening there. Right. But they could have found a resolution to that moral, you know, talking with their father and, and getting it worked out so that Chrono could be let go. But my point is, is that the 1080 current from their perspective time period has no issues. They can go back there. They can leave it all behind. This is never going to affect me. I can live my life in peace and everything will be fine. So there, there's a sense of like altruism. It, this is kind of funny. I, I didn't bring this up in the video that I'm bringing that I'm talking about tomorrow because it didn't quite fit. But I feel like somehow Kingdom Hearts was able to capture the spirit of a silent protagonist without the protagonist actually being silent. Yeah. Um, and in part it was through um, sort of like a Harry Potter-esque type character where it's, it's just somebody that everyone can get behind, you know, like mm-hmm. he doesn't do things wrong. He doesn't like, he doesn't whistle at girls. He doesn't, um, you know, he's not, he doesn't have a temper that gets him into trouble. He doesn't do things like that. He just kind of, is there and things are happening around him and he's just trying to be as as positive as he can through the whole thing and as helpful as he can towards other people and as friendly as he can. And that type of character kind of, even though it may not be exactly what the characters imprinted onto the silent protagonist, it's somebody that for the most part, people aren't going to be like, Oh, that's, you know, Oh, I I, like, I don't like the character, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and you you touched on altruism, right? Yeah, I think yeah, they're that just perfect people, you know. For me, that really is at the heart of I think the spirit of Chrono Trigger. You you think about how the music makes you feel. It's uh, a lot of like hopeful, um, yeah, yeah, adventure the- style. Like, uh, and there's also a lot of mysticism there. A lot of, um, especially like the motifs around the twelve thousand BC time period. Um, this, this sense of adventure of, of hope, having like a hopeful attitude, wanting to change the future, wanting to help from an altruistic sense, like out of just the goodness of your heart and wanting to like do what you feel is the right thing. And at the same time, this sense of like, look at all these mysteries. Like if, if it were open to you, just think of the possibilities. If time travel all of a sudden became a possibility for you today. The curiosity to see what the world was like in different time periods would, I think, be too freaking hard to resist, right? There's, there's a sense of adventure and mysticism there alongside this altruistic um, goodness, just like the goodness of the characters' hearts to say, no, we should get involved and we should help these people even though we don't have to. To me, that is the spirit of Chrono Trigger. Sure. That is what I feel when I play it. And so every choice that you would make in that movie should I feel be creating that kind of feeling in in the in the audience and that will help them feel like okay this feels right to me like uh there is a you know some people who are critics of Chrono Trigger say it feels very um like it doesn't have a maturity necessarily to the story like it's like it's a, a very shonen sort of like style uh, of story where it's it's made for like uh, young kids, uh, maybe like early teenager, preteen boy kind of a thing. Um, but I think that that in and of itself 
I mean, there's all we talk. I don't know if it's last week. Anyway, we've talked about Kingdom, Kingdom Hearts and how yeah, last week those um, those stories, the the Disney stories that were written for people of younger age to watch, you know, is is also mindful of the adults who take the kids to see those movies. I feel the same about Suikoden, right? Like mm-hmm. it 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 satisfies both, and to me, Chrono Trigger satisfies both. I can play it as an adult and really appreciate all of its excellence and its execution and the way that it's written and the way that it's paced and everything else. And I appreciated it as a younger person too, for that sort of um, maybe like ignorance, is not the right word, the innocence of like a kid getting involved in something, thinking that they can make a difference and getting in over their head kind of a deal. Um, And be like, yeah, I can do this. Like us teenagers, we can save the world, but it's like, you know, so to me, it satisfies both things. Um, like a Pixar movie does, like a uh, mm-hmm. Disney animated film from the 90s does, like Suikoden does. Um, and so you have to, I think, embody or embrace that tone for sure. You can't make Chrono Trigger into a dark and gritty, grounded, realistic thing. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awful. It would feel wrong, which also leads me to, I don't think that you can make it a live action film. I think, again, some kind of Ghibli, some kind of Ghibli-esque. Or Toriyama, right? Yeah, uh, Dragon Ball Z esque, not in the feeling of Dragon Ball Z, but just the art stuff. <laughs> I think that one thing that I would change is the Toriyama Dragon Ball Z art style. Yeah, I'm because never a fan of his, honestly. As many people as love Chrono Trigger, there are still there's still a lot of people who aren't like the hugest or the biggest fan of the art style of Chrono Trigger. They don't really like yeah. Dragon Ball Z's art style, and so they're like, eh, I'm not a big fan of the art style. I think it works for Chrono Trigger for what it is, but I think if you're going to adapt it, it, that's not one of the things that if you lose that, you're going to lose the spirit. In fact, I don't actually think that art style works very well in the spirit of Chrono Trigger just in general. (laughs) It's very sharp. It's very um, rugged and and jagged, and the the characters have that smirk, and I I just yeah, it, it doesn't, I don't think that art style actually works very well for Chrono Trigger despite that being what they went with for the DS version. So that would be one of the very first controversial decisions. <laughs> yes. yes, but Gliding Falcon actually brings up a really good point here. He says he uh, he is a has a flat character arc. He changes people. People don't change him. Mm. That, uh, that goes back to what we talked about several weeks ago. Remember we had that... Co- that... Not every character has to be around... Yeah round character and i don't think we should make not like we're doing this but i don't think chrono trigger has to be a rounded out character with an arc and all that kind of stuff you're exactly right i'm, I'm glad this was brought up yes <laughs> that this is this is exactly what you have to do with chrono. people around him do but because yeah. he's a protagonist you just can't give him that arc you just yeah. can't you have to skip him. <laughs> so I don't remember which episode it was. We talked about um, flat characters in the podcast. I think it was episode two of this current resonant arc, uh, state of the arc podcast. We talked about, do you always have to, or is, are flat characters always bad? Or do you always have to have a round character as your main protagonist? Yeah. And the answer is no, that there are different ways of doing this. And, and uh, a lot of success that films have had where they don't have a round character, a character that doesn't change beginning to end, right? Is that that character is the one who goes and affects change on the supporting cast. So the supporting cast of people are the ones who are suffering, having problems in um, 
situations in their life where they're not sure how to move on. And our main protagonist goes in and gives his or her philosophy or affects them in a way that helps them to resolution. But the main character themselves already knows the answers, already has the answers, is already living the philosophy that is correct. And the supporting characters are the ones who need the help. That's exactly what you would have to do with Chrono. Now, how does he do that without talking? <laughs> okay, he has to talk. He does have to talk, but it's just like, what? Who in the world? So I agree in, in, the, in that sense. You do need, I think most uh, video games from the 80s and 90s, if you're going to ad- adapt them, they need to be animated. They can't be live action. They just, yep. because it's easier to accept. Uh, maybe you can find a voice somewhere out there, right? Uh, but the way the are the way people are drawn along with the voice kind of gives you a different idea of like who the character is, as opposed to just having the live action character. And well, this is his voice. This is Tom Cruise looks like Tom Cruise, and it's Tom Cruise voice. And here's Chrono, everybody. <laughs> oh, that's Tom Cruise. That's not Chrono. Anyways, um, when you're doing uh, the animated thing, I think that that is the best way to do something like this, especially with this type of character, because and he's got to have a voice. He's got to talk. He's got to talk. Yeah. But at least with the animation, you can mitigate some of that, ugh, some of that weird feeling of people not really liking the main actor. Yeah. Uh, Miss Mona asked, what's an example of a flat character? Uh, F- Gliding Falcon brought up Sora and Paddington Bear, but also uh, Marty McFly. We yeah. talked a lot about yeah. uh, Marty McFly from uh, the Back to the Future movies. So Marty McFly is a flat character. He, there is some. It's it's. There's always, like I said, there's a, there's, um, a spectrum. It's not black and white most of the time. Marty McFly's one th- weakness in those movies is that he can't refuse a challenge of being called a coward or a chicken. Yeah, and so yeah. he he has to respond to that. And he learns to let that go. That is one thing. But for the most part, that's the story is not really contingent on his change. The story is contingent on his father's change. So yeah. Marty goes back in time and he knows the philosophy of how to like be confident in how to like uh, live better, right? He knows the answers that his fa- that has, has eluded his father who's been picked on and bullied his whole life. And Marty goes back in time and affects changes on his mother and his father in the past. And, and even to some degree, um, uh, he affects change in uh, Doc too. So like he, yeah. he sees Doc in the future and he's friends with Doc, but when he goes back, Doc is not the same guy in the past as he was in the yeah. future. And Marty affects all the change of the supporting characters around him. But he, for the most part, is a flat character. Yeah. Um, so when you're going to have a flat character as your main protagonist, they have to be the one changing the lives of all the other characters who are around. So the supporting cast is all around and they have problems and they need to learn things, right? So you would have to do the same thing. And the structure of Chrono Trigger is actually really already perfectly set up for this. We already have the, the Marl and, and her um, struggle with connection with her father. You know, they don't, they don't agree. They fight and argue a lot. They, there's a lot of tension between them in their relationship, that father-daughter daughter relationship. Chrono in the film would have to directly affect the change to like help them resolve that problem. Luca has the whole her past feeling, the guilt that she has felt for the accident that happened to her mother. Um, Like that's kind of her entire thing, why she decided to become an inventor, why she's so obsessed with technology and really understanding things because she didn't know how to stop the machine that harmed her mother um, and, and left her maimed for life. And so 
Chrono would have to be integral in sort of helping her move past that barrier and, and learning to let go and forgive herself. Um, the Frog uh, is, is obviously dealing with um, not feeling like he is capable, um, feeling like he's not strong enough like his mentor, uh, Cyrus, Cyrus, I think it was, um, and, and feeling inadequate and feeling like he's, you know, he's got to, uh, anyways, kind of sort of hide from his problems sort of a thing, right? And Chrono coming into the equation would have to embolden him and move him onto his path. Um, so all of these characters have uh, conflict, internal conflict, and are round characters that have to overcome something. And Chrono is already set up as the flat character by default because he's the silent protagonist. But see, here's, here's where, why it works as a video game. Even though Chrono isn't speaking to them and isn't like helping them work through their problems like verbally, you as the player through Chrono as the tool in your hand that's connecting you to the world, you are actually solving the problems. So you're, you're recruiting these people and you're going in and you're actually resolving them through playing the game. So mm. you, through Chrono, are mm. a problem solver. So Chrono has to be a problem solver. He has to be a guy who's altruistic. He has to um, really want to help people genuinely. Be, be a good-hearted guy. Maybe a little bit naive. Sure. In, in his... Be because he's, he's up against something that's so so much bigger than him that he, yeah. you'd have to have some level of naivety to actually think that you can do what yeah. he ends up doing. So not necessarily dumb because no. again, this was the player character. You don't want to make the player character feel like yeah. they were dumb, but naive, at least in understanding of like exactly the gravity of what's happening here. Exactly. Cause you learn about lava. So it's like, Oh, we got to freaking solve this, but you don't know about 12,000 BC and the complicated political structure. You don't know about like what happened in 65,000 BC. You don't know about like all these things. And you, and you, you arrive in the situation and go, Oh, there's some complexity here. We're going to have to solve some, some problems. And we're going to have to, in order to get this character to come with us and help us, we're going to have to help him get past his issues. And we're going to have to do this. So, Chrono has got to be a problem solver. And that was expressed in the game through you playing it, through you going and doing and being active and progressive in your attempts to solve the problems for the characters and resolve things. Now, you have to give voice to that to some degree, probably, uh, and, and, and a little bit of characterization to Chrono in order to build him up as to how he became this way. How did he become this sure. altruistic helper like yeah. guy who's like really just wants to reach out and like make people feel better and get them past their issues? And, yeah. and how did he become this way? I think you'd have to build a little bit of context there that w is not in the game that would lead us to believe that he's this kind of person. But then everything he does is in... He gets self-fulfillment, self-actualization through helping other people. How does that sound to people? I think that's awesome. <laughs> there you go. We just fleshed out Chrono. Now, not everybody, you know, agrees, I guess. <laughs> but Let's see what people are saying here. Well, some um, people, well, one thing Christine says is we're overly worried about giving him or Link lines of dialogue and that whole kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I think, I think we kind of... Um, with that pretty well give me a sec there's actually been a ton of comments 
Um, Riker's Beard saying animated movies in general are better for less grounded, whimsical fantasy settings like those in early JRPGs. So we're there. Riker's Beard does think Marty McFly has a character arc, though. So. Again, I'm not saying he doesn't have it's one. It's just, it's not the it's main It's not the point. Arc. Yeah. Yeah. Again, there's spectrums to this. It's not black or white. It's not, he has to have one or not have one. It's, he has a very minor one in comparison to what the real problem of the movie is. Right. Oh, and then Ninjutsu Kid is saying this really makes sense given the way Chrono picks up his team, and that totally that totally makes sense. In fact, er, no. So when I said not everyone agrees, that probably wasn't totally correct. Basically, most people kind of do agree. Sora confirmed for Forrest Gump. Anyway, <laughs> so and then asking like, what's an example of a flat character? Well, Chrono, Sora, um, sort of. Marty McFly. Yeah, Marty McFly. Sort of. Well, Harry Potter for the first four books. <laughs> yeah, Harry Potter. Harry Potter's a good example, actually. He's yeah. pretty dang flat, and he's pretty dang altruistic, and he's pretty dang naive. He's he's kind of, um, yeah, he's just, he's basically the character we're talking about here. Same with Sora. Same with sort of Aang from Avatar also. I bring this up in my video I'm releasing tomorrow. Um, but a character that just is altruistic has good intentions is very powerful can help people and wants to help people and that's you know that's basically it you know ang does have his own character arc that i wouldn't call him completely flat though so anyway um, we've got the uh, main character pretty well nailed down here so riker's beard says i think you guys just nailed one of the strengths of storytelling in the video game medium uh that's the first thing you would have to change if switching over to something more passive and visual depending on how integral that particular element is to the big picture there needs to be a disconnect. In video games, you are given the illusion of being directly involved in the story, mm. where in book or film, it's more that you are living vicariously through the main character that you're supposed to identify with. So that's a very good point, very good point you bring up. And the way that they express that in the video game is to set up the problems and make you the doer. Yeah, exactly. You are the you are the doer. You Chrono is the oh, doer guy. Problems, yeah. Okay, here's the problem. What are we gonna do? And Chrono just runs in there. Doop, 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 doop. I'm going to save her. Like when when Marl disappears in the very beginning, right? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. oh, she disappears, and everyone's going, oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? And who is the one? The doer. Chrono runs into uh, you as the player. Do it. You run into the portal and you go. I'm going to go save her. I'm going to solve this problem. Um, later on, when you realize what's going on with Lavos, I don't remember if it's um. A dialogue option you can choose to say yes or no i can't remember exactly what happens but chrono is the one who goes like whoosh, he does his, his like little fist pump and he's like let's go and he, he's that kind of guy but yeah it's yeah. like a man all the characters are not sure they're feeling un they're not very confident they don't know what what they should get involved or not and chrono runs to the center stage and goes whoosh, let's go like that's his that's who he i will is. take the ring yeah. <laughs> And he's very positive about it. He's it, it, the music switch, and it's the da, 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 da. it's very like upbeat and forward thinking. So you have to rather than uh, in the game where that's expressed through the through the player going, "Let's move forward." Literally, I'm pushing the character forward. Let's go. Mm. You have to express that with, I would think, some level of original. Like you have to build this because it's not in the source material you have to create how did chrono become this way and sort of explain a little bit of his background you know with his maybe mother and father and background to his life and how he became like this um maybe there is something you can build into his father not being in the picture that's led him to 
sort of embrace this idea of like being positive for his mom, you know, fixing problems, being forward thinking, moving forward rather than like letting your doubts overcome you and, you know, like getting stuck, unable to do anything. Maybe his mother's that way. Right. Oh, sure. For for whatever reason, that father's not in the picture, whether he died, whether he left, whatever it is you come up with, she became that way, uncertain. I don't really know what to do. Now, there is a laziness to Chrono that's sort of um, expressed by his mom in the very first scene, like, wake up, sleepyhead, like you're going to miss the thing. So there's yeah. got to be some some sort of like childhood, um, not, uh, not, not caring, but um, just, uh, what do you call it, like... Just not taking things super seriously all the time, sure, sure, right? Yeah. Like he, he's a he's a lighthearted dude to begin with, and positive thinker and a doer. And a, a, let's not dwell on the negative here. Let's move forward and be positive about this. I think that is who you have to make him, and and give just a little bit of justification, a little characterization, a little background on that, so that we believe in that, and then uh, make him like super like progressive minded and just like let's go people let's go solve this let's go do this and this would actually make spoilers if you have not played chrono trigger you should probably click away for the next 10 or 15 minutes or or turn the volume off for like not not 10 or 15 minutes for 10 or 15 20 seconds seconds yeah three two one mute pause whatever you have to do get away it would make a similar impact on chrono's death scene that like Gandalf was for the Fellowship of the Ring because he was like the bedrock and the foundation. Yeah, he was the 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 anchor of the group. Yeah, he knew what to do. You could always rely on him. And and if, if this in this scenario, Chrono is the bedrock of the party because he's the progressive thinker. He's the he's the doer. He's the let's go forward. And if when he's gone and all the people who struggled and he helped them overcome their problems, um, he's gone now. It could be like, oh crap! Like, what do we do without the guy who like makes everything happen? Yeah. So I think we're hitting on something with this. Okay, turn your volume back up. Come back. <laughs> Click. You can come back now. Well. Anyways, that's a start. I don't think we 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 where we should go with it. We but would develop. And that's something that basically you'll see that none of these video game movies actually do what we talked about and yeah. i don't know that it would for sure work but i'd say it would definitely help capture the spirit of some of these games a lot better mm-hmm. for sure the, and that the was silent the, you you least. even though you would have to change a lot of things like to cut a lot of things yeah it wouldn't be exactly perfectly faithful it would still feel right yeah exactly and the person directing your attention to the scenes needs to understand this has to have been passionate about the source material Otherwise, it's going to feel formulaic. It's not going to get it, and it's going to feel wrong. That's how Ender's Game felt to me. Production was very good. Visual effects were amazing. Yeah. Um, very competently made film. Just didn't work. Didn't resonate. Didn't feel it the way I felt it reading, reading the book. And it's because they didn't. They didn't get this. Like Orson Scott Card said, what he he thinks he finally arrived at like what worked. In in, mm. in the that the relationships, the leadership of, of Ender being something that people look for as like a, a way to anchor their own lives, right? And this is kind of what we're talking about with Chrono, making Chrono into that kind of character. It's almost the same exact scenario uh, as, as Ender, the purpose that Ender served. Now, Ender has some 
more internal conflict and problems and is not necessarily always positive, but similar idea in that he's the leader and people look to that leader to sort of like help them, uh, you know, get through their problems and stuff. Anyways, let's move on. All right. To our community stories. For all the input, somebody did mention though, Forrest Gump being a, a live action silent protagonist. That was pretty good. Forrest Gump's a good way to do that. I, it just only works for that <laughs> that specific story. <laughs> it link into a Forrest Gump. I don't know if people would like that. Yeah, but maybe it, there's uh, maybe there's something there. We could think about that. Probably more. is. It probably is. Um. Okay. So community stories. This week we had a a um a submission from Zylo or Zylon seventy three, um, who is working on a menu script translation for Fire Emblem Thracia 776. This is one of the Fire Emblem games on the Super Nintendo that was never officially localized. I should say Super Famicom that was never officially localized uh, in English. Um, It's also one of the more popular Fire Emblem games among um, emulation communities. So uh, it introduced a lot of, let's, um, for instance, like a lot of the aspects that felt new to Western audiences in, um, in uh, Fire Emblem Awakening, like the marriage mechanic and like, um, like sort of the next generation. You can sort of like tailor their classes and, you know, characters standing next to each other on the field and they give each other different bonuses and stuff. Um, I think it was Thracia, if I'm not mistaken, that actually for the first time had a lot of those mechanics built into a fire emblem game. But, um, obviously th- those didn't t- really take prominence again in, in some of the future titles on the game boy and the GameCube and thing and the Wii and stuff like that. Um, until fire emblem awakening came out. Um, so he's working on a, a menu script translation. Uh, Thracia seven, seven, six has been, or has long been the fire emblem community's white whale. Project Exile is my own attempt to finally put this English patch to bed, using the remnants of Curb's patch uh, as the foundation and taking the menu translation uh, and considerable technical advice from Zane. The script uses new translation done by myself in the spirit of transparency and to help uh, disseminate this new translation more quickly. You can view complete PDFs of my translation below. As you would expect, I've translated a few names differently from how many people might know them, Uh, but any changes were made for the sake of clarity without further ado download links uh follow below as well as a contact or as well as contact info and the discord server the patch is being coordinated out of so uh i will put this link both in the chat and in the video description if you guys are interested in checking this out um uh, but essentially, you can give feedback uh, if you'd like, and if you're passionate about uh, Fire Emblem and especially Thracia uh, 776, this is something I think that would be cool to look into. Now, that being said, um, he he went on to ask this question on Patreon, which I think is kind of sort of coincides with um, with what he's working on here. He says, I made a post about projects in the community stories channel in the Discord, but I thought of a question that kind of goes along with it. How do you guys feel about localization? How much is too much? How Mm. little is too little? Should you stick to the same words and phrases or go for meaning over context? What about characters and personalities? Thanks, as always. 
This is a highly controversial absolutely and debatable topic. And uh, my thoughts on this are not going to resonate with everyone. Um, a lot of people are, are adamant about accuracy and even push more towards transliteration, which is just tell me exactly yeah. what they said in more English. Poor people tend to go that direction. I will say right off the bat, that is not me. I do not agree with that. <laughs> I am a meaning over words and phrasing guy. I want the meaning of it to, to come across and if necessary, even change some of the context of the scene so that it, that meaning will be more easily understood in the culture to which mm. you are translating this into. Now, the reason why that's tough for a lot of people as well is because that's all on the whims and understanding of the person localizing. Exactly. So you're, you're putting a lot of weight on the shoulder of the localization team to understand both cultures correctly. And the best way to take something that would be meaningful in one culture that doesn't mean anything in the other and find an appropriate replacement for that thing. Um, that is a difficult task and people are going to disagree heavily on the choices made there. However, that being said, I can then take my qualms up with the localization team and I would rather debate whether or not that was the right choice than to give me some transliterated version of the scene and I go, I don't understand the significance of this. I don't understand why they're talking about this because I'm not uh, knowledgeable about the culture that the original script comes from. Now, might, some people might point to me and be like, culture yourself and learn about other things and do research into Japanese culture so that you know and understand the context. But it's like, dude, some people, like, that's going to be their hobby and they're going to be into that. And I think that's great. I, I would love to do that if I had time for it. But there are other things in life that I am also passionate about and like <laughs> knowing all the nuances of Japanese culture so that I can perfectly yeah. understand a localization that's transliterated more than translated uh, is not one of the things I choose to do when I, you know, when I'm deciding how I should spend my time. So I would appreciate a strong localization that takes culture into account and makes changes according to the culture it's going into. Yeah. That's not the same thing as censorship i want to make that very clear i'm mm -hmm. not on board with censorship because someone thinks that it's not moral that this sex scene is in it or whatever or that this isn't but different cultures do have different standards for that kind that's of stuff true and so there is some gray area here yes right <laughs> so this is I'm, I'm prefacing everything we say here with there is no right or wrong answer to this this is just what we think <laughs> Yeah, I tend to agree. Let me give you this link too, Kason. You might Let's find this an interesting read. Um, this is Richard Honeywood, an interview with him. He was a translator at Squaresoft for many, many years, translated some of the most beloved Square games uh, ever. Um, games like mm -hmm. Xenogears, games like Chrono ah. Cross, games like uh, Final Fantasy X, I want to say was the first one he worked on. Um, could have been 12. No, it wasn't 12. 12 was the other dudes that do all well, of Well, 11. Them. There's 11 here. 11. That yeah, they talk about. Anyways, he is good, and I love his thoughts on this. And, I, and I'll, I'll put this link in the chat for you guys to read as well. It's a fascinating interview and really sheds a lot of light onto how difficult it is to do this. 
I'll put it in the description on YouTube as well, of course. Um, so the first part of the interview says, you know, what's your first video game you localize? He goes into talking about all the games he's worked on. Um, where do you start when translating a video game into English? Take us through the process. Your team executes from uh, start to finish. Um, and then he goes into, let's see, I'll try to find exactly the point that I liked. He's kind of just talking about like the technical process here. Um, not really anything too groundbreaking yet. What's the most important thing when translating dialogue? With on-screen text, it's to convey the meaning as best as you can within the text limitations, as well as to localize it uh, so it is completely natural to your target audience. That just basically summed it up right there. That one sentence response is how oh, I yeah. agree that it should be done. Um, knowing what to change and what to keep is a talent uh, itself. In the case of voice dialogue, the major consideration is that you have strict time limits. And if the time isn't going to re-render the lip movements... Oh, he's talking about matching voices and, and, yeah. and stuff like that. Um, it goes on to say... Um, no, he's talking about, like, accents and stuff. Um, he, he talked specifically about uh, an example from one of the games. I'm trying to remember where it was. They approach cultural references that are very specific to the original foreign demographic that maybe a U.S. or British audience would not understand in their original form. Once again, it depends on the title and dev team. Whenever possible, we try to change it to something more fitting for each target language and audience. There are many titles where we change graphics, animations, and sounds to better suit English. For example, see the scene in The Bouncer where Ko is infiltrating Mikado's office in disguise and has to do gestures so as not to get caught. We redid the motion capture so that the mime of an alarm clock and an OK sign made sense in to, uh, with both audiences. You can see it if you switch between Japanese and English voice modes in the Japanese or U.S. release of the game. So there are certain... Um, what do you call it, like gestures in one culture that mean something that have no meaning in another. So they change yeah. the, the, the hand gestures or whatever so that it would make sense to the other audience, right? Yeah. Another example could be Chocobo Racing, where we replace the graphics of Momotaro and Kiji, Japanese folk heroes of uh, Peach Boy and his faithful bird, with Hansel and Gretel in one scene. So I, I, they had a Japanese myth that English audiences wouldn't be familiar with or a fable i guess you could call it and they switched it to hansel and gretel which is something every kid in the western world is familiar with right so those mm -hmm. are some minor examples um in fact we even go back over and rewrite our american english into british english whenever we can to make both english audiences make sure they're both catered to um there was one very specific thing i wanted to read to this i don't want to take too long but because you're all getting the point of where i'm going with this case in uh, we'll give his thoughts on this too. But sure. How much liberty does a translator team have to slightly modify the meaning of text to better suit a foreign demographic? Do you have any examples of when this happened? Uh, I think it was something to do with um, Titus and Yuna. Here we go. I think it's this part. Also think of Final Fantasy X, when at the end of the story, Yuna turns to Titus and says, Arigato in Japanese. In English, it sounded really weird for a girl who was turning to the man she loves and may never see again and just say a simple thanks. 
During recording, our translator asked the scenario writer, Nojima-san, whether he could change the line to, I love you. Okay, so if we transliterate that and she just goes, thanks, while Titus disappears, it's, it, it doesn't have the same impact as what they change it to for our culture. But arigatou, saying thanks in Japanese, had a different connotation than the word thanks does in English. I, I think an even more important distinction would be I love you. In Japanese culture, I love you is aishiteru, uh, and it's actually very uncommon for people to say I love you to somebody else. Um, like it wouldn't be unusual for um, a couple in Japan to never have said I love you to each other or to their children their entire lives. Now think of that that as a, from a Western perspective. <laughs> that is that that's not insane, insane from a Western, Western perspective, right? Yeah. But in Japanese, that's that's normal. That's part of their culture. They don't say I love you. Not often. Yeah. Right. So it would have been weird to have her say I love you in Japanese. So they said thanks. But when then you reverse that cultural difference. Like, hey, we actually can do that here. Yeah. And and in fact, it would be weird at this point to be the last thing you say to the guy to be, hey, thanks. <laughs> it wouldn't be strong enough. Right. So these are things that have to be taken into account. And, and for anybody who's uh, you know, watching, listening, please go check out the whole interview. It's amazing. Really, really amazing um, to get a perspective on just how vast the cultural differences can be and how sometimes it's really the better choice to make the change. And yeah. so in my opinion, that's what you should do when you're localizing. I'm sure other people will have strong counter arguments to that. And I'm willing to hear them, but uh, this particular example with Yuna and Titus is most one example most people in the chat seem to, to agree with you. Um, I, uh, Comrade Sandwich says Persona 5's localization is aimed a little more at people wanting to learn about Japanese culture, and I think that's entirely um, acceptable. I think that's um, probably the best thing for that game to have done because the game is literally set in Japan. You are in Tokyo. You go outside of one of the Japanese stations and you see the little the dog. Ah, crap. I can't remember the dog's name. Hachiko? Hachiko, I think. And you see stuff like it's actually, these are actual places in Tokyo. And the way that they talk, yeah, these Japanese references that you won't understand if you're American as well, right? And I think that's totally fine and acceptable. But for games like Final Fantasy, where they're not in Japan, they're just some in some fantasy land, right? it makes a little less sense to force you to understand Japanese culture in order to play the game mm -hmm. or in order to understand the game. Um, generally speaking, I fall kind of in the middle of this whole thing because I love Japanese culture and I love learning the language as well. And so I, I want to know the literal, I want to know the transliteration um, in terms of the artistic experience, the translation and the localization is way better. Uh, but in terms of my curiosity and my own personal, you know, leanings, I want to know the exact Japanese so that I can study it and learn Japanese better. I want to know exactly what they said in their language. Sometimes I'll play the game with Japanese audio, but English subtitles. And it's really difficult when the subtitles in English don't match the Japanese audio that I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. um, it's really frustrating. But that's my choice to play a game that way. Very few people actually do that. Um, so there's those kinds of problems. But also, I do appreciate learning more about Japanese culture in different instances and in different places throughout games um, in ways that uh, 
you know, would be taken out in, in modern localization. But that's, that's almost like breaking the fourth wall a little bit for a Japanese company to release a game like Super Mario and for you to have to understand Japanese culture in order, like Mario RPG has a few elements that are pretty dang Japanese or Harvest Moon, for example, Harvest Moon's a, a, big a game that's basically about farming, but it doesn't feel like you're in Japan farming. It feels like, well, gosh, you could be anywhere. You could be in America, Europe, maybe you are in Japan. I don't know, but it doesn't feel just Japanese. But they have all sorts of festivals and some of the stuff you see on on TV, uh, especially in the Super NES Japanese um, or with Super NES Harvest Moon. The woman, when you turn on the TV, you look at the news and the woman bows. She stops, she bows, and then she reads the news, or she reads the news and then she bows at the end. I can't remember which one it was, but it's like, oh, that's cool. I like seeing that. Mm because of my involvement in the culture. However, it does not need to be there. And it's almost breaking the fourth wall. It's almost like, Oh yeah, the guys who made these games are from Japan. Okay. <laughs> you know, but you're not supposed to think that when you're playing a, when you're experiencing a work of art, you're, you're not supposed to be thinking that that sure. almost breaks the fourth wall a little bit, but I personally absolutely love it because I do learn a little more about Japanese culture as I play games made in Japan. And I think that's really valuable. Yeah. And then also with the language stuff. But I totally understand as an artistic experience, you you should not be doing that. Right. They um, should have taken the bow out because that makes you think about who made the game as opposed to being immersed in the game. Sure. So my answer to you, Zylon, is uh, take liberties, man. I mean, uh, as a person who understands both cultures, yeah. um, who has lived in both places and who speaks both languages fluently. I mean, use that to your advantage and and help convey the meaning cuz that's that's really what's all about like communication and storytelling. Language is all meant the purpose of it all is to convey a theme, a message, a meaning to another person, right? It's an it's an incomplete, imperfect way of doing so because we're all locked in the prism of our own individual minds. We can't actually feel what another person feels. And so we use language, we use soliloquy, we use allegory, we use all these ways to try to communicate the feeling we have to someone else so that they they understand what we're thinking and feeling, the thoughts and feelings yeah. that we have. And uh, language is really, really tough. <laughs> it's a really tough way because my understanding of the language and your understanding of the language are different. So I use these words and they mean something different to you based on your personality and your personal experience, this goes back to the podcast where I talked about how individual experience completely shapes the way we subjectively see reality um, and why we have such varying opinions on things. It's so hard, but I mean, do the best that you can, I would think to convey what this particular gesture, phrase, word, whatever means to the Japanese people culturally the spirit of what they are trying to say. Again, we're getting back to the spirit of things, right? Oh yeah. That's always what it's about. Carrying over that spirit so that the spirit of the thing is communicated in English, not so that the, the exact wording is communicated accurately, but rather that the sentiment, the feeling, the spirit, the meaning of it is communicated as accurately as possible to the people in the other language that you're translating into. That's my philosophy behind how it should be done. Yeah. I would say, though, 
if any inspirations for the game you're translating or anything did come from Japan specifically, that it's okay to leave certain like maybe Easter egg references in there to uh, Japanese culture. For example, in Breath of the Wild, and Nintendo does such a good job with this, but in Breath of the Wild, you have the Yiga clan, and the leader of the Yiga clan is somebody named Master Koga. And the Yiga and the Koga in Japan were the two big uh, rival ninja like um, clans, towns, clans, basically, yeah, in Japan that would be hired out by the government to do secret operations and stuff. And that didn't need to be in Zelda. They could have changed the names and whatever, and it would have been fine. But I did the, really the, the like Lannisters that, and the Starks. <laughs> yeah, sure. But I did really like that's hilarious. Um, that that would be a step too far because that's not even American. So, anyways, but um, the, like, but I did like that. Clearly, the Yiga were based on the ninja, right? And the Sheikah, in some weird way, they're they're based on the ninja as well. So that parallel is already there. So to insert some Japanese culture and history into a fantasy game that is at least taking inspiration from that is actually really um, reasonable. And I think is, uh, I think it works. I really, I really appreciated it at least. All right. Well, uh, Zylan did a comment here. It says, like I mentioned earlier, Mike, I think you would get along with Siro-san and his translation opinion. So is it Kiro-san or Siro-san? Kiro-san? His well, translation opinions. if it's a C, I don't know. <laughs> it would be Shiro-san or Shiro-san. Kiro-san. It could be either, I guess. Mm. In any case, that is the end of our podcast. We're done. Thank you, it's everyone, over. for it's tuning over. in. You guys are beasts. Thanks for all the support. And uh, look forward to Kaysen's video on Monday. If you're listening to this audio only or on YouTube later, it's already mm. out. You can watch it right now. Uh, go watch it on Resonant Arc main channel. This goes on yep. the Archive channel. So it's not here. It's on the other one. Go to the other one and watch Kaysen's Kingdom Hearts video if you're into Kingdom Hearts. Um, anyways, look forward to that, those who are here with us today. And um, we will see you again next week. Have a great rest of your weekend. Peace out. Peace.